Welcome to the Beyond X podcast. I'm your host, Mahir Ibrahimi, and every week I speak to leading industry experts, trailblazers, and market leaders, where we discuss the key topics of our time in detail and have a deep dive conversation on areas like sustainability, technology, urban planning and city design, health and fitness, and more. In today's episode of Beyond Cities, I spoke with Dr. Giancarlo Mango. In the first part of our discussion, we unwrapped existing cities and spoke on the advantages of a regional approach to master planning, the impact and importance of natural integration within cities, the impact of foreign investment on housing prices, and the importance of promoting affordable housing in general, and most importantly, the shortcomings of the modern suburban ecosystem. In the second part of our discussion, we explored the future of cities and how urban environments can be built with nature at their core rather than the reverse. We also touched on children's need for play, the benefits of intergenerational communities, the role of sustainability in city design, self-sustaining cities and the circular economy within cities, and building brand new cities of the future. The different discussion points are all timestamped throughout the episode, so you can freely move around as you see fit. Dr. Giancarlo Mangone is an award-winning urban planner with nearly 20 years of experience and is internationally recognized for his unique interdisciplinary expertise in designing and implementing communities, strategies, and assets that maximize their socioeconomic and sustainability performance potential. He is currently developing diverse sustainability projects for the Asia-Pacific region with the United Nations. Dr. Mangone is also principal of Wicked Solutions, where he brings together interdisciplinary teams and key stakeholders to deliver aspirational industry-leading projects across every global region. He's collaborated with the likes of MVRDP Architects, William McDonough Partners, the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro, Uru Habold, ACOM, SHL, Ken Yang, and Meccano. He previously founded Adnox Master Planning Department and led the strategic planning and implementation of their built assets. Dr. Mangone's research and projects have been published in various scientific journals, professional industry publications, and books, and he is regularly invited to international editorial boards and technical committees of sustainability for the likes of the United Nations, Korea Forestry Service, the City of Jakarta, EU Circular Economy, and the Canadian Museum of Nature, to name a few. Thank you so much for joining us today, Giancarlo. I want to start off by asking you how you got into sustainability. So was it the reason you got into architecture or was it one of the things that happened after you got into architecture, you saw there's room to focus more on sustainability? What's the genesis of this? I grew up doing, I don't know, it was the time when parents actually let kids go outside. Okay. On and so, yeah, I used to play in the wetlands and the mangroves and the beaches and just grew up with nature and just always had a strong connection to it, surfing and everything else. And yeah, oh no, I, I guess when I was going through architecture, sustainability started to become something like Ken Yang was becoming popular, William McDonough, Cradle to Cradle, all these things. And I don't know, I just, for whatever reason, I just really latched onto it and I thought it was important. And yeah, and it became driving force in my career. And I think it also because it opened new design opportunities. And in my opinion, it makes design better if you do it right and not just through a technical approach, but really explore it creatively and innovatively. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's, it's something we're seeing more and more focused, especially when you go into city design around nature and sustainability play a, a really leading role into it. But I want to start things off with sort of an individual look and then build our way up to communities, cities, mm. countries. Let's see if we can keep it on earth, but <laughs> sky's the limit, I guess. How to make a sustainable Mars colony. 
<laughs> I mean, that's a good follow-up episode <laughs> topic, I think. So I, I think one of the things that really became part of the spotlight was during the pandemic, people were really looking at how their homes look. And because we were spending more and more time at home, one of the obvious things was, okay, the greenery, the plants, things that made us feel a bit more, let's say, tethered to the world that we lived in. It just became a fundamental part of what people were talking about. And I think it's something that I hope at least has stuck across that. So what are your thoughts on this? What are your thoughts on the trend? What are your thoughts on the kind of benefits that I can give you? So for me, it opens up Pandora's box to much larger questions because I would say a lot of things happened with COVID. And one of them was people moving from smaller apartments in the city because they didn't live in their apartment. They lived in the city, in the public space and in the, and in the bars and the restaurants, mm -hmm. the parks. And then that was just taken away. Right. So then all of a sudden their worlds became much smaller, became only the apartment. And then they, at that point it became too small. And so they moved to the suburbs. So one of the things is number one, it shows that there isn't enough nature in most cities. And yeah, even if you have parks, even if you have something beautiful like Central Park and Battery Park, it's not like you at the edge of the city within 10, 15 minutes, you have a forest or you have a beautiful beach. It's usually not the case in most major cities, New York, for example. So one of the things is to me, it demonstrated that there's a lack of a strong connection between actual nature access, like high quality rural nature access and cities in our communities. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, it showed there's a demand for it, hence the move to suburbs. And the ironic thing is, of course, when you move to sprawl housing, then you're actually being unsustainable. And then actually putting yeah. plants in that is more unsustainable because you're usually using the soil for the plants. If you're using soil based is actually coming from peat, which is coming from swamps, which are being destroyed. Mm -hmm. So you're actually making it worse. So it's actually this whole system that really needs to be fixed. For me, it makes a really compelling argument for bringing nature back, bringing the connection of nature back to cities, doing compact cities so that you live in walkable, highly livable, very vibrant cities with a lot of economic engines going and growth. And on top of that, having the really high quality nature access without having to sacrifice disconnecting yourself from these vibrant metropolitan hubs that a lot of people appreciate and want to live in. So I think it really shows that actually it's a fundamental flaw in our current development models that we don't be more strategic with how we develop our cities and we just keep sprawling and we don't think about how do we give rapid access to nature from everyone's home? And how do we make sure that even if you're living in an apartment, you have rapid access to high quality nature and you don't live in a concrete island or just the even the faux park, so Central Park, it's nice, but it's not like living next to Smoky Mountains or the White Mountains. What you're basically saying is rather than using this migration model of moving somewhere that has greenery outside of metropolitan areas, we should really look to at least put some of that within the mainstay cities. Is that really realistic though? Look at cities like New York, look at cities like London, where so much of the city is already built up. How can you go back now and then, okay, what are you going to remove housing to build parks? Is that something that can be done for existing cities? Well, most, most major cities were actually built in biodiversity hotspots. And the reason is because most major cities were built before 1970. Okay, now this is changing with Southeast Asia, but anyways, and so basically they were actually dependent on the natural geography and biogeomorphology for their energy sources and for their logistics and infrastructure, meaning their trade routes. So most cities were founded in rivers or with a lot of wood or access to a lot of resources, which tended to be biodiversity hotspots, which are basically 
where some of the most vibrant and rich nature in the world is located. So you already have that fundamentally. New York City is already super compact. So it's not making an argument to blow up half of New York City. It's more making an argument for the periphery. Do you really need to build all along the all around New York City? Or do you start to really concentrate it and have these compact nodes and allow nature to breathe and have ecological corridors that connect to it? A project that I worked on, the Dust Prince Foundation Sustainable Soil City Design Competition was in Concepcion, Chile. So it's the southernmost city in Chile. And the sprawl is just going into their national forest and it's just deforesting everything. And deforestation is a huge issue in a lot of cities, particularly in the developing worlds. And by shifting the development model where you concentrate the housing downtown, there were so many savings because number one, they were flooding because the rivers are flooding or are flooding. Mm. The rivers flood every year. And so the sprawl homes are already getting destroyed and then they're just rebuilding them. Number two, the commutes are so long over an hour each way that they're losing economic opportunity and their quality and cost of living is subpar. And then it's also creating traffic congestion and air pollution and on goes. When you develop compactly, you create much more economic growth and opportunity because there's much more footfall in your city and in front of every individual building. So any businesses that establish themselves there have a much greater profit potential and a much larger client base. And at the same time, it makes overall the capex and opex of cities when they're built compactly when you don't build one story, when you build 10 stories or eight stories on average, you reduce the operation construction costs by 30% or more. That's on projects I personally work on that we've gone to hit those numbers. And that's the low bar. That's if you just build standard status quo, just meet the basic building code standards and health requirements. But if you actually built something of a more ambitious performance value, which can oftentimes be cheaper, you can make much more savings, upwards of 50%. So instead of going out horizontally, go up vertically, keeping that same kind of level of compactness, but keeping space for nature. Yeah, but the unfortunate thing is usually this becomes a debate between single family or Manhattan, right? Like super skyscrapers right, right. or super low scrapers, if you want to call it, or ground scrapers. And really, that's a false equation. There's many more options in between. And so even just if you did four stories on average, there's been calculations by different research and think tanks. If you just shifted everyone to four-story townhomes, if that was the average, and so if you say that's the average, by the way, keep in mind, if an average is four stories, that means you can have some one stories. They're of just course. not the majority. And like in the US, it's something like 70 or 80% of homes are single family. So people talk about it like it's this little equation, but no, right now it's overwhelmingly single family. Like no one questions it and it just keeps happening. And at the same time, there's all these other cost benefits from doing the opposite. So even if you do four stories, you can fit the entire global population within the state of Texas. There's been studies like that. And four stories, I'm not a big fan. For part of it, yes. But if you do 10 stories, there's just there's so many benefits to creating what's called a 3D city. And you can just, you can mix so much more vibrant mixed use buildings when you get that big. Again, not for the whole city, but for part. I'm a big fan of just hybrid. And with nature, everything is diverse. You never have the same standardized thing over and over again. Like if you had one tree in the whole world, we wouldn't have oxygen. The, the ecosystems right. would fail. So it's the same. I look at it the same way. Diversity is also beauty. So if you have these 10-story buildings, you're taking up much less space and you're not doing the extreme. But you can also have towers sprinkled in. It's not a bad thing. 
But the point is just to get across that four story, which makes such a huge impact. 10 story has a lot of vibrancy and then you can go further. But the other thing to bring to mind is I see all these like with Cope and they're talking about zero energy, zero carbon and net positive renewable energy and all these things. And the issue is there's so many obstacles to achieving this. And what I mean by that is we don't have anywhere near the manufacturing capabilities right now to manufacture the quantum of solar panels and wind turbines that are needed to make the transition. The amount of copper, already copper companies are sounding the alarm. They don't have anywhere near, they have four days of reserves. And on average, they usually measure their reserves by weeks, not on days. So we have these supply constraints in the near term and potentially, and probably in the intermediate. And so the biggest impact that I think we can have that is quite less controversial and difficult to implement, because also it's been documented a lot, building the high speed electrical transmission corridors just in the US is going to take so long because the approval process currently to get any individual site approved, it just is multi-years. So just to get one corridor built, there's people trying to build corridors that have been over a decade and they still haven't been successful. So how do we roll this out fast? And so I think a more pragmatic approach is what if we did a global moratorium on sprawl? And so instead of sprawl and single family homes being the de facto development model, which costs cities, a lot of cities in the US are going bankrupt because when they developed and expanded the infrastructure, the city did that, it took on that cost. The way they funded it was through property taxes. And so the way they kept feeding their economy, their budget was by continually expanding the city. But they never actually, they never included in their financial model the operating costs. And so when you sprawl so much, the operating costs are so much higher. It needs so much more workers and so much more infrastructure, materials, and resources at a continuous basis that never ends and even increases over time as things break down. That they never accounted for that and they're going bankrupt, right? They can't afford these things. And even if they're not going bankrupt, think of them how much public spaces and parks and programs and savings could we have made with all that money that's basically been inefficiently wasted. So yeah, for me, one of the big things is actually why are we not talking about just building smarter, which especially for the global south would save them substantial amounts of money to not copy the inefficient North American model, which also has documented it contributes substantially to our epidemic of loneliness. People have never been as lonely and siloed and isolated as they have been now. And especially as our society digitizes more, the public realm and physical and social interactions, because it's well-documented, huge impact they have on our health and well-being, it's more important than ever before. And yet at the same time, the response to COVID, as you say, and this remote work, which was a sub-variant of it, no pun intended there, was that... <laughs> is to move to an isolated village somewhere. Even small towns are in France and I forget, someone saw me somewhere else. All over the world, some places are actually paying people to move there because yeah. their local population is leaving and they want the tax base. But then we're perpetuating this isolation system where we should actually be doing something different. So there's good density and bad density. With everything, it depends on the design. There's not something that just doesn't work fundamentally. The only thing that doesn't work fundamentally from a sustainability point of view, but also from a livability point of view, is single-family sprawl. So what would be the solution for, okay, let's say we stick to four to yes. 10 stories. Would you then build greenery in between housing? Would you still do hubs of housing space and then within walking or easy driving distance, you would do greenery in larger spaces? Look, it's a great question. It depends on the context, right? So every place is different. 
So again, if you look at my proposal on Concepcion in Chile, it was like within 10 minutes, give people rapid access to nature. So number one, if you have high quality nature within 400 meters of your home, so at least a park, it's like 30%. I don't remember the exact numbers, but you're much more likely to actually be physically active and go outside and exercise and even talk to neighbors in your free time. So rapid convenience and comfortable access of nature is highly crucial. Another really good example that is well documented is EcoCity, the book by Richard Rogers, I believe is his name. And he describes all these different quality of experience and quality of life opportunities that creating compact cities tied to nature give you. So like if you preserve nature, so if around you, you see sprawling nature and you had, what was the Jim Carrey movie where he was God? It showed like he's looking out on a sprawled town and then he's looking at it then like 2000 years ago and you just see all the nature that was there. So if you were looking at at this verdant, beautiful nature, or if you ever go hiking and you get to one of these vistas and you see over hundreds and hundreds of miles, you could have that in your downtowns. If you had some tall buildings and you preserved the nature around you and you looked out and on top of that, 70% of all life has been removed, has been killed from this earth in the last 50 or 70 years, according to the World Wildlife Institute annual reports on the living index of the planet. And so if we did this, you would also see much more life. You would see flocks of birds flying through the air, which actually, again, all these things are shown through science to psychologically benefit us. When we see animals in a calm state and flying through the air, soaring in formation is one of those things. We actually de-stress and happier as well as a lot of other things. And it tends to inspire awe. I would just say any type of nature has been shown scientifically to improve mood, stress, energy levels. And that's one of the things I wanted to ask, because even if you look at the hub model, I don't know who I was speaking to, but they were talking about the future of cities from the transportation perspective. And they were really looking at having a living area that is standalone model of itself. And I think we can touch on that with some new case studies later on. But one thing to me that doesn't work if it's let's say within 500 meters, 600 meters is if you don't have direct view of some kind of nature and it doesn't have to be greenery necessarily, it could be water features, it could be a pond, a lake, whatever. It could literally be wooden benches if it needs to be. But some view of nature makes a big difference, I think, rather than having it in a zone of living people in another zone where you have parks. I don't know if you're incorporating this in a way, but is there a way to have basically greenery everywhere across the city? Do we need to really design cities to have houses that don't yeah, it, have? It's a great point. Yeah, look, I think it goes back to compact. And one is, think about it this way, the more surface area you take up, so the more sprawled you are, then the more costly it is to green all that in yeah. and the more resources you need. And again, the more peat and marsh destruction you need to have the plants and all these other things. So. The more compact you go, the more you can invest in your public spaces. Or to put it another way, for the same cost as our current cities, especially our sprawl communities, you can have 10 times, 100x better public spaces that are much more interesting, provide much more activities and much higher quality of nature. So a forest versus just a couple of trees and then grass everywhere. Right. And by the way, I would disagree with what you said. So a lot of my PhD was actually investigating the psychological and economic benefits of nature. And all green is not equal. So when you do the literature view and even the studies I did, you find that wild nature is much more beneficial than, let's say, manicured nature or ornamental nature. So these Victorian era and British styled and classic North American, uh, you have one tree and then you have grass everywhere and then you have another tree 
or in some sort of, let's say, organized design, like geometric or in lines, it's not nearly as beneficial across all sorts of metrics than wild nature and being immersed in nature. And that's why the Japanese, I believe the Japanese started from a scientific perspective and from a health perspective called Shinrin-yoku, and it translates roughly to forest bathing. And so you literally, as part of your health insurance, get days off to go walk through the forest. And now they have forest rehabilitation centers. And I was even invited by the Minister of Forestry for Korea to go to Korea and view some of these and also advise on how to design some of these to benefit the local community. So they were actually creating retreats where people would come in groups and do all sorts of activities in nature. And again, they were documenting all the benefits, health benefits, psychological and even physiological. So they would even measure saliva and all these other things. Is there research on why that is? Is it just that it's wild or is it maybe having things in such an organized box to box? Look, science is very slow, especially when you get to psychological. My psychological colleagues I collaborate with, I used to be a professor. I would work with my psychology professors and quite a good friend of mine, John Zelensky, who runs the Happiness Lab and also created the Nature Connectedness Metric. We would have these debates and we would do some studies and it always remind me, Nate, the science is so slow and you'll never get this very definitive answer. But what I can say is in reviewing the literature, it's a lot of things. But when you sum it all up, it's about, and this is a scientific term, just salt. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. It's that the sum is greater than the parts. So it's more about how, this is my interpretation by reading, I'm sure thousands at this point, papers and seeing that, because they did studies that specifically looked at the odors that the trees emit. And those have benefits. And then only the visual. But again, the images of trees didn't have as big of an effect. Looking at an image of a forest in an office versus walking through a forest. But again, that involves movement versus not movement. So they've, tried, and they've done urban walking versus forest walking. So you try to minimize your variables. But anyways, the point of it is they've looked at it in many different ways. It can't be 100% conclusive, but it generally says... Yeah, it's about immersive nature. Okay. And the good point is when we have wild nature, that's what preserves biodiversity, which we need to survive because we need oxygen, but also helps maintain the health of the global ecosystems, but also we get much more value from it. I think one really missed opportunity with our current cities, in the US at least, it's a really hot topic once in a while. And it's a hot topic generally, but it really flares up sometimes, which is how do we help all these rural communities, particularly in the Rust Belt, that their economies have just drained away with the shift in the global economy and national and regional economies. And I think a real lost opportunity is really connecting nature to these areas and creating strategically tourism strategies and regional tourism co-ops and ways to enjoy nature and have it as part of your economy, but also in a way that's preserved, restored, expanded. And part of the problem is we don't do regional master planning. We barely do city master plan where we follow it. It's pretty much developer-led. Developer has money, says he wants to build something, says he's going to give some sort of value back to the community, and we say, okay. But we really need to, and this is what's interesting about some projects in the Middle East, is they're actually really looking at it strategically. Now, there's arguments about if it's actually followed in terms of development, but they're really looking at, okay, do we develop a strategy? And we think about it regionally, all the systems together. And then you create much more opportunities to grow the economy better. And that's where you can really achieve sustainability. So I'm a big proponent of regional master planning. I think that's actually, it can do, have a big impact 
on this issue of the slowness of implementing renewable energy, both the plants and the transmission corridors, because they do these environmental analyses per plot, arguably. And if it's a corridor, let's call that a plot. But the issue is if they would have these regional master plans, they would say they would have identified, okay, here's the no construction zone which would be your ecological corridor or your core. This is where the core of the animals need to live and shouldn't be disturbed. So for any individual project, we're going to allow you to build if it is outside of, let's say, the restricted zone or the most important zone. Now, then you need to do studies to make sure you're not destroying individual habitats and all that. But what you can do is do the fundamental approval and then you can really expedite things rather than doing a plot by plot and project by project evaluation. You actually do a systemic evaluation, which then allows everything to be approved, but also allows for systemic design instead of piecemeal design. The first question that comes to my mind, is that really feasible with the constraints of the business world, wanting to always allow for growth, not necessarily in a sustainable way? Yeah, because number one, it's already being done. So yeah. there's examples. There's a great book called New Localism. I can't remember the authors offhand. But they go through cities throughout the U.S. and Canada and Copenhagen and across the world. It's mostly North America, but there's some international examples where they show that actually the way they succeeded, some of these communities, was they created a task force in the region. And it included the business leaders, but also the government leaders and the institutional leaders, civil institutions. And so if there's a region that's really advanced in agriculture, such as in the Rust Belt, then they focused on that, but they also said, okay, but how do we connect that to all the other systems? So even with tourism and all of this. And so they figured, again, in a lot of these examples, they concentrate their economy and their development in one area. Sprawl doesn't help anyone. It doesn't help the businesses. There's theories like the tire manufacturers and the car manufacturers, of course, want sprawl because they need no cars. But just, let's say at the larger scale and from a GDP point of view, it's documented over and over again. You produce much more GDP, for example, by restoring a nature area or making an area more resilient. So creating barrier islands of nature to protect against sea level rise actually produces more jobs and jobs that pay more and are actually more resilient and last longer than, let's say, a job in the fossil fuel industry, which historically actually pays well. So there's these interesting, from a business perspective, again, when you look at it systemically, which you have to, because if you only look at it business by business, you're never going to get anywhere, right? Because it's always going to be one person's interests, and that's not necessarily everybody's interests. I know that as leading a, a development here in the Middle East, what I can say is that happens time and time again, where, and not just on my project, but on other projects I've worked on, where developers come in and say, we'll build this, and here's all the benefit we'll get you. And when I look at it, I'm like, yeah, okay, that's profitable for you, but at the larger city scale, it's very inefficient and there's so much better things we can do with that plot of land because also they try to take a larger amount of area than they need because land has the greatest economic value and profit potential in the future, not the building. So one of their goals is to get as much land as possible that they then plan to either rent or sell and profit from in the future. So they don't have an innate drive to use the least amount of land, which is the most beneficial for everyone else, right? Because the less land each business takes up, the more businesses you can have in the same areas. And the more businesses you have within a walkable distance, which is limited, so maximum, let's say one kilometer, depends on your weather, that's your zone. That's where you're going to create the most economic value. And that's why downtowns, of course, their real estate values are higher. I think 
if you stick to the financial aspects of things, if you look at it from the perspective of housing costs, we see this, especially in some of the bigger cities. And it's something I think a lot of different cities are doing now, where they essentially tell people you can't buy homes anymore unless you're going to live in it. Because what mm -hmm. people do is they buy homes in downtowns and then never end up living in it. How do you measure for that? Because obviously, I think the conversations I've had in the past with people, everyone says cities plan for growth organically, not in the sense that this city then becomes a kind of metropolitan hub. And then everybody wants to have a house in London, even though they yeah. don't live near it, or they want to have a house in Manhattan, even if they don't live anywhere near it. So how do you work on that? Every master plan, the first thing you start with and the thing, you know, I really have to reiterate all the time in my day to day with different teams that aren't in the master planning profession, but are in the development world is the first thing you got to start with is economic market demand analysis. And even I was going to another project in another country recently, and I ran into someone who works for the World Bank and they're approving projects throughout Southeast Asia. And again, their response was the same that I've had, because I'm always curious, their barriers to implementation of sustainable and good cities are. And time again, it's the same thing. It's politics and it's governance. And if you think that's not related to economics, then okay, maybe get a different profession. So <laughs> look, these things are innately, inherently integrated, and there's always key players and stakeholders in every city and every community. And a lot of times that's what's driving development. So if you're not addressing that, then I don't know what impact you can really make. Because Vancouver is going through this and London. I mean, it's not that the local wealthy are buying up all the properties because, hey, you know what? I have a view of the London Bridge, but I want it from this angle, not this angle. So let me buy another penthouse over here. That's not what's going on. Okay, there is some investment from the local market and population, but a lot of it is foreign money. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's mostly international money. Yeah. And a lot of it is with Vancouver, historically, you know, it's Chinese money and it's just like getting their money outside of China. And there's all sorts of reasons for why they're doing it. But this is a part of globalization. And we hit arguably, maybe we didn't, but it seems we've hit peak globalization in a way where we just open borders and just let everyone do a free for all all over the world. And now what's happened in Vancouver and another place in Australia and London is with this international investment, the local population can't afford the housing. But not only that, when you have a vacant buildings, not just units, but buildings, what does that do to the quality of life and quality of the community and the economic opportunities, even for the local businesses? You're hurting the local businesses. Mm. It's not quantified normally, but it should be. That when you have these empty businesses, you don't get the foot traffic that when you open your business in a downtown next to all these towers, you think, great, I have thousands of people walking by my yeah. restaurant every day and you don't. And that's not fair the business owner, and you're depriving them of economic opportunity. But not only that, you're starving your own city of GDP. So you're hurting your own economy. So just because the developer is able to sell units, right, with those investors at a marked up rate, because there's a lot of different reasons why they're buying that property. And not all of it is because it's a sound investment, right? So the price isn't necessarily always an issue. So they're paying more. So a local market's priced out. And then on top yeah. of that, you're bringing the local economy because now there's none of that vibrancy and you don't have the population that you're supposed to be. And you're sizing your infrastructure based on it, but now it's not being used. So now your utility plants aren't actually running efficiently because they're oversized. So you have to take these factors into account and you have to regulate these things. So, I mean, if you don't think about these things, how can you make these plans? 
you will say, okay, this city will organically grow in this way within the local market, right? If suddenly it becomes an investment opportunity for international mm -hmm. buyers and you have planned it, even if it's a hub model of, let's say, 20 homes or 30 homes or whatever would work, but people come in and buy those. So your rule of thumb doesn't work as much. Can you plan for that? Is there outside of just regulating these people out? Is there a way to account for that outside of the business sense, just from the perspective that we want everyone to be within 400 meters of nature? I haven't seen when I work with all the different economic consultants, mm -hmm. I haven't seen them say, well, if you build this much property, you have this much downtown and it has this view of this key asset, like the Burj Khalifa or Central Park. You're going to attract this much international investors. I haven't seen that quantified, so I don't think they have that in their models. I could be wrong. Maybe in somewhere they do. But I don't think they think, do either. Yeah, exactly. So these things happen generally spontaneously and organically exactly. as, as they go. So yeah, but that's why you need a nimble management and governance system that is responding to this. So when you ask me, can you plan around it? As I said at the beginning of this, governance is key. And you can't have a functioning city without proper governance. So I don't see how you get around it. There might be some technical ways, but when you get into regulations, so affordable housing. So if we know that these people are investing at a higher rate and they're using it for all these different things and they're not living there, why are we not mandating affordable housing? Then people say, well, yeah. And then you get all the arguments, right? Well, then they're not actually going to invest. Okay, but then you have housing for the local population. And at this point in time, in most vibrant cities, we have a housing deficit, not a housing surplus. Generally, Aristotle said it thousands of years ago. There's <laughs> in every case. So anyone can pick apart anything you or I say and point out some extreme case and say, see, they're wrong. And that's not true. We talk about generalities and happy to talk about specific examples if they come up. So in general, there's a housing deficit, not a housing surplus. We need more housing. So if we scare away international investors, what that actually means is we're actually having more affordable housing rates for the local population. Now, is that a bad thing? Is it? No. Well, I, I, mean, I guess it depends on you, but... I, depend, I mean, but I mean, see, the thing is, there's cities that rely on that investment as well, right? So from the financial perspective, I'm always of the perspective that if people live somewhere, they should be able to afford housing. Well, no, but... give me an example. So, so Seattle wouldn't be functioning without international investors. I think Microsoft and Amazon would argue with that. So the places where the investor... London. I mean, look, the UK's made its own mess. It's made its bed and now it's lying <laughs> in it. But the reason why it attracts international investors is also the reason why it has such a vibrant economy. Actually, a lot of people who move there come from certain countries and are very wealthy and bring their very expensive cars and frankly aren't that nice to the local population, like Battery Park. There's examples of how it was supposed to create all these local community investments and uh, provide housing for local people. And so far, last time I checked, I think they might have fixed it. Everyone was getting priced out and kicked out and there was no community access and there's all sorts of problems. So show me an example of these international investors buying their ghost properties and never sitting in them where it's actually benefited the city. And then we can talk about it. <laughs> I'm not saying it. I'm not saying it does, but I think when you look at it from the perspective of money coming in, yeah. then that's the thing, right? It comes down to the economy of it. Is that what the money you need to go in or should you actually, like, well, I don't know, why would you focus you on about more long -term? just buying units instead of what about attracting businesses? What about creating, again, more economic opportunity for people? And again, it, most cities, they have a housing deficit. Their mandate should be, and a lot of them claim it is, to put the pedal to the metal on housing construction. But at the same time, with NIMBYism, and so much 
I mean, the amount of ways that the local community can stop a project, it arguably goes too far because you can't, it's completely stopped development, right? And so arguably that needs to be fixed because again, if you look at it from a system view or a regional planning point of view, if one neighbor is complaining about a denser building next to them, from a systemic view, that doesn't make any sense why you would appease that. Now, there's different solutions, you know, make sure that person's happy. But a lot of times also, the way cities developed and our economic system is what set us up in this aggressive and conflicting relationship because these people's property value went up because of the lack of access to housing. And a lot of people retire on that value of their house, that equity for their retirement and, and for their life. And so I can't blame them. It's difficult to blame someone to battle for their, to not want to be homeless while they're retired. But again, in my opinion, the smarter thing would be systemic solutions saying this is the situation. And it's not one per. it's not Peter Smith on Forest Hill Street. It's millions of people are affected by this. So we need to come up with intelligent solutions that affect everyone. Now, one of the things that I've thought is, again, why do you need apartments interspersed with single family homes? Like, I haven't really understood this concept because walkability is an issue, right? You can't really get anywhere when you walk if you're doing that. It creates a noise issue because there's more people. I've always thought, why aren't you focusing on the transport hubs? So even in a sprawl community, like let's take Boston because I, I just know it. And so there's these hubs where it's the end of the line. And a lot of people who are living in single family homes drive to this station and a number of stations along the way. They leave their car in this huge piece of pavement that collects so much heat in the summer. And, and then they get on the train and they go downtown. So why wouldn't you densify that hub, right? And then you actually can create a lot of great public space with that investment. You can create parks and you can interconnect the community and densify that community without creating all these problems. And actually the, the property values would go up for everyone. So you think that's more of a realistic model for the future from the suburban urban divide? Well, it's like what you said, we have so much existing assets that it's not like we can just bulldoze everything. Yeah. So we need to think strategically. And unfortunately, strategic thinking is becoming, it seems when you read the news and stuff, less and less common these days. But yeah, we need to look strategically at existing cities and what can we do. And so one thing is to densify the cores. And then even when we talk about the suburbs, they're isolated. They're stranded yeah. assets. They have no community space. And those people are disconnected and isolated. And it's not their fault. One of the reasons is because we allow false property prices for those. Yeah. Right? So they falsely look cheaper because the cost of that land is based on the pre-developed land or on very low developed land or very really low demand land, as opposed to the downtown. But that's not right. And so when you look at Greenbelt cities, which actually, when you look at the research, have been very successful in terms of limiting sprawl, but also not having exorbitant housing prices. And some have been fared better than others, but that's a more, that's an actual more transparent cost. And again, that's why economics is part of it, because you have to say, okay, if we're going to limit the amount of area where you can build. So you can't just have cheaper houses further and further out forever, where there's always a cheaper housing option if you're just willing to drive 10, 20, 30 more minutes. If we come up with this other strategy where we say, no, we're going to constrain it, then you got to figure out how are we going to make sure that houses are still affordable. And the solution that research shows is having a large enough supply that meets and exceeds demand. Mm -hmm. The other thing is 
people would argue, oh, but now you're depriving me of this cheap home and it's cheaper and it works and it's worked for 50 years or more. So why are you making a problem? And the thing is, it goes back to what I said at the beginning, which is the cost of that land isn't accounting for the maintenance costs and all the services that need to be provided, the schools, the fire people, the police, all that healthcare costs, the hospitals, getting proper emergency response times means it's more ambulances and more this and more everything. And so those costs aren't accounted for. And the cost of those services go up over time with inflation and just with wage growth and with the cost of healthcare just up. And so those aren't accounted for. So if you say, yeah, so why are you not letting me buy at that price? Because the city is going bankrupt and everyone's paying for it, including you in the long term. Mm -hmm. It's a false low cost. That makes perfect sense. And it's one of those problems that during the pandemic became even more relevant. People look at the immediate issue of, okay, I need money to do whatever, sometimes to feed my family, yeah. sometimes to just survive, but sometimes live a kind of okay life continuously. And they don't think long-term how this cost affects them. But I think that's a really good place to wrap up the existing cities portion of things. I really want to move to talk a bit more about new cities. Something you've worked on okay. a lot is future cities. And I think this gives us a bit of ability to flex our imaginary brain muscles, if you will. And basically just kind of thinking outside the box of what is currently there. Because I think everything we've talked about so now, the constraint is what currently exists. Like what is there True. and how we build around True. it. When you yeah. look at new cities, that's not always going to be the problem. Before we get into that, I want to come back a bit to nature. One of the things I'm a big fan of is the concept in Milan, the Bosco Verticale. I'm sure you've heard of it, where they have the oh, green okay. kind of built into the city. Oh, the green, like the vertical yeah, skyscrapers. Yeah, 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 I know. I've worked, I've worked with them before. Yeah. So we talked about urban hubs. We talked about building cities with greenery as close as possible. What about building buildings with greenery in them or on them? Literally. So part of my PhD was even going with Ken Yang and doing research with him. And for those that don't know, Ken Yang is from Malaysia, but he arguably popularized green walls. Mm -hmm. And he argued that having a continuous green wall on the outside promotes biodiversity because it's continuous. It doesn't really, it's not really true. But part of my PhD was actually investigating that. It was saying, okay, green walls versus just a couple plants, which is what you're asking me. And I would argue that project, it's basically like vertical forest, yes. right? So Bosco Vertale. But my problem with it, problem. Look, things that get people excited about sustainability and nature are good, right? So first off, good that it did that. So I'll, I'll start with a positive. But then I'd say it's just like, it's like a couple plants, trees on each one's private balcony. There's no public space. I mean, I've talked to the team that works on it and I've worked with them on different projects. And what I've seen on their projects and what I'm, the part that I'm critical of is it's the privatization of nature. And I don't mean this in a capitalistic, socialistic, right. antagonistic way. How many more istics can I add in there? <laughs> but yeah, but what I mean is if you only have one tree on your own personal balcony, if you look at some of my designs, some of my research when I was a professor, it was looking at, a forest, a super block that has a park in it. And there's examples of this in reality. So something built much earlier that I would strongly suggest you look at based on your interest is called Tropic Nord, which was built in the 70s in Montreal. It still exists. And it's a huge rainforest, greenhouse with a rainforest in it with waterfalls and swimming pools. And swimming pools are like rocks. It looks like a jungle cave. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And there's birds and parrots. And so the interesting thing is, first of all, I ran into it in negative 40 degrees when I moved to Montreal as a student. 
And I was like, what is this greenhouse doing? And I was, my hands were turning blue, literally turning blue when I was taking pictures of this weird greenhouse with trees in it in negative 40 degrees. So number one, you're in an extreme environment. So when it's negative 40 degrees outside, when you're at home, all the homes have open balconies looking over this forest. Mm. And so you feel like you're in tropical paradise when everyone else feels like they're going to turn into the abominable snowman. And on the second thing, I interviewed the building owners and the facility manager and some of the tenants. And even now, it's one of the most in-demand properties in the city. They've never had an issue with vacancy. Their waiting list is years. I think they said five to 10 years waiting list to get a unit there. So it shows you that there is demand for this kind of thing, right? And by the way, that it works. It was built in the 70s with 70s building materials, and the thing is still functioning well. And my argument is that it's a bunch of very wealthy people, so just like Bosco de Calle, but that doesn't mean it's too expensive for a normal housing. Even Stefano Boeri, the architect of the Milan Project, is doing affordable housing version in Netherlands. So no, depending on design, you can do it affordably. I don't want that to be misconstrued. It can generate a lot of value. And the other thing is that the people there value that park and use it much more and get much more value when you make it into a forest instead of just individual trees because it's more immersive and it goes back to all those benefits. Would you rather have this beautiful park and forest or one tree on your balcony? So there's, it's this give and take. So put a whole park next to your house. So once you have a park, if you have multi-tenants in the same building, like a super block, then you have multi-tenants, including not just residents, but a way to reduce the cost of housing and the park. One, if it's a municipal park. So now the city, they were going to build a park anyways. They collect it through their property taxes. They're just putting it integrated into a building rather than separated, isolated on a street. So that's a way to reduce costs. If you add offices that also have access to the forest, which again, there's these nice time differentials. When people are in the office, the people are usually not in their homes for obvious reasons, although remote work is blurring this a bit. And then if you have a pool in the park, then the elderly can use it for rehab or not just rehab, but even maintenance of their bodies and staying healthy, which is really important for them. And then you can, the rest of the community can use it when they're not using it. So you have a higher use of a quote unquote, more expensive asset, but also medical costs. It's been shown now that you can reduce medical care, which is skyrocketing everywhere, by having more processes and functions and services happening close to your home than in the hospital. So now, again, if you integrate elderly in the same block as other families and children and single people, having that nursing station for the elderly, if it's an assisted care place or not, but just having a nursing center there, they are using it. So there's a low risk for the medical company to invest in and to operate. But then you also get acute care access for families, which your kid always gets sick. As far as I'm told, it happens quite a lot and everything else. There's a lot of economic benefits and savings that can happen. And the funny thing is it looks more expensive. Wow, I have a park in my backyard. But one last thing I'd just like to point out is that I talked about isolation before and it's happening with kids. And the interesting thing is when you look at the surveys across the Western world, because most research happens in the West. So I feel it's important to pull those things out so we know what we're talking about. Most parents say, oh, my kids don't want to go outside. They're too glued to their phone, right? So they put the onus on the kids. When you ask the kids, say, no, my parents say I'm not allowed to go out because they don't believe it's safe. Even though in North America, the amount of kidnappings from kids being outside is less than 1%. I think it's even less than 0.01%, if I remember right. 
But there's been this huge surge by parents to say, no, the kids have to be within my eyesight at all times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This independent growth and development isn't happening, which, by the way, is actually a key deficit in learning development, cognitive development. So the other thing, letting kids just be out in a forest or out in nature without any instruction, without any structured activity or learning has been shown to be much better for cognitive development than structured learning. And the problem is our education system in a lot of ways is moving in the opposite direction. Everything is being structured, even after school activities. And there's no freedom anymore, freedom of thinking. And that nature, so to reel it all back, in the park, in the building, when the parents, when they can see their kids still from their balcony, and let's say that park is enclosed, if it's a cold environment, like Tropic Nord. So again, I'm just pointing this out, that it's happened, so it's feasible. It doesn't have to be enclosed. Obviously, there's more cost to that. But anyways, if it's right outside your doorstep and you have what's called eyes on the street, which has been shown people believe in it, when people see other people around, they feel more secure. And so also, if the elderly are in the same building and using the same park, and by the way, when you're walking to the same entrance as hundreds of other people, because you're not an individual house, you're in more apartments, so you talk sometimes yeah. to your neighbors, at least, or at least you see them in the elevator and at least you do the heads up maybe, there's a certain level of security. But on top of that, the elderly can provide childcare. And the elderly can teach the kids how to garden which has been shown to improve cognitive development incidents for the elderly, but also happiness and social connectedness and development, all these lovely things. So, I mean, we can get around these huge issues such as depression and loneliness through making our communities much more connected, through making much better spaces and much more public spaces and much better connections to nature through a community-oriented and community-scale approach and then on top of that, a regional scale approach. Of I love that because essentially what you're saying is rather than taking buildings as is and integrating nature into it, let's take nature as it is and integrate buildings around it. And I mean, yeah. from across the spectrum, I think it makes sense because people above the age of 70 are known to have longer life if they have children around them. It's a known fact that yeah. geriatric care increases when you have a reason to live and children that kind of gives you reason to want to continue. I would argue it depends on the kid. Have you seen Home Alone or Dennis <laughs> the Man? Don't look too healthy. Well, I think it also yeah. depends if they're related to you or not. But when I was in London, it was a common thing where people sign up to go and spend time with elders who yeah. have no family or whose family live far away. And there had been scientific studies that show yeah. how this actually impacted how long they lived. Especially if they didn't yeah. have family that came and visited and so on and so forth. And again, there's been countless studies on the impact. Grandparents, but really elder people have around the grandchildren and how they grow. Well, I'll give you two examples. So a Dutch example is they have college kids who are actually, they give them housing in the same mixed-use development as elderly. And they're required to spend time with the elderly, maybe mm. do some chores for them and everything else. Of course, they benefit financially. And that's one thing I forgot to mention about what I call intergenerational housing. You're actually creating jobs for people because now the elderly can provide care. Maybe they're providing maintenance both to the garden and the park and the building. I mean, there's so many ways to actually generate economic opportunities or reduce costs for some people. And again, it's such a low cost because you're that cost of a couple of people maintaining the garden distributed across all the people living in the apartment is very low. So anyways, the Dutch example is the college kids 
They do these chores, but also create these relationships with these elderly. So I would also argue, by the way, that a lot of this shows not only do the elderly benefit, honestly, we benefit from being more friendly and would I argue more human to each other, which in my, what I mean by that is being more social to each other and actually being nice to each other and saying hi when you walk down the road, which is really, unfortunately, I've noticed, maybe it's just the places I'm living, it's disappearing. And a lot of it has to do with the phone because we just stare at the phone yeah. everywhere. So we never talk to anybody anymore. They've done studies where you have the phone on the table at dinner and you have less meaningful and deep conversations just by the phone being there. Because cognitively, subconsciously, you just want your brain to be able to jump out of the conversation and yeah. jump on your phone if you get a tweet or, uh, well, that they're not doing so good anymore. So if you get a WhatsApp thing or an Instagram. So the second example was look back historically, ancestrally at human civilization. And even history was passed down orally, mostly through the elders, through very elaborate community gatherings that everyone came to. And they were told through these stories, which then created drama and the arts and culture, right? Eventually, it evolved to plays and Shakespeare. That's how we transpired our stories and our entertainment from one generation to the other. And the elderly would teach life skills. There's always a value to someone who's walked this earth yeah. for so many years. They've seen a lot more than we have. And there's always something to learn. No, 100%. I mean, you put it on the money. The nuclear family as it exists today is a relatively new thing up until, what, less than 100 years ago. But let's say 100 years ago, we didn't have these single families that lived in a single home. You'd have grandparents and yep. aunts and uncles. And, yeah, and, and a lot of parts of the world, that's still exactly the case. This is really yes. a, more of a Western phenomenon, I think, than it is a general. But not necessarily Western. I mean, arguably, and I could be wrong, Anglo-Saxon. Because if you look at the blue zones, Western includes Sicily, mm -hmm. The Japanese, if you look at a lot of the blue zones, the case studies that I read, they never came to conclusive evidence. But the similarities that you see is like the elderly were completely valued and cherished by the community in Sicily, where everyone stops by to tell them about their day and to talk about their lives and to just spend time with them on a daily basis and even help them with their daily activities. Now, on top of that, they're in communities where they're forced to actually do physical activities. So it's hilly. So you have elderly doing very active lifestyles that you just frankly don't see in the suburbs in the West. It's just a paving and you just move with your car or whatever. And even when you're old and can't drive, aren't allowed to drive anymore in some cases, someone else drives you. You're not walking. So there's also a difference in the lifestyles. And I wouldn't say West because I think that's too broad brush. I think that makes perfect sense. And I like the sort of natural part of it. So I want to go in two different directions at the same time. First, sure. I want to talk about just health in general. So mm -hmm. like obviously looking at nature and everything around it is good. What about fitness, right? Working out, whatnot. How do you integrate that into something like this? What are your thoughts on that? Let's start with that and then build up. Everyone has their own approaches. Mm -hmm. And I already said it, within 400 meters, there's a, a park. People are going to use mm -hmm. it. So I've looked at the research. It's not definitive because it doesn't test every individual thing. But... Basically, to promote activity, one, nature access seems to be one of the key drivers. Unfortunately, we go back. And honestly, because my PhD was a lot about nature access. And after that, I was like, okay, I want to move on. <laughs> and even when sustainable city, healthy city, livable city, exercise city, elderly city, everything somehow pulled me back to nature every time. Yeah. And the book I'm writing now that's taken way too long and it's going to take way too long, but it really is 
going into that. Yeah. So activity one is, is unfortunately nature access. And two, it's a diversity of activities, right? So having a gym access is one thing. But that's what I try to do is like create all different forms of opportunities. So you design a cliff that's for nature, but also people can go, of course, rock climbing, but just putting in stairs, like putting in means of even these micro exercise opportunities. But again, rapid access to high quality nature. So if you have a forest next to the city, you can really develop, disturb the nature because we say don't disturb, don't destroy any. No, next to the city, make it highly active, highly disturbed. There you, you can do dirt biking trails and four by four trails and hiking and yoga at the top of a mountain or hanging in a tree house, weird Instagram stuff, stopping but floating on a tree on a, you know, some sort of board. You can have wellness spas. You can have cultural activities and festivals. And that's where what I do usually is go in and see what are the local resources? What are the local natural assets? And then what opportunities for recreation? And for tourism and wellness, can we create? So I think it is contextual, right? So you can enjoy different landscapes in different ways. But there's so many, there's so many things you can do. So, so you build examples. all of it into it. And how would you do the residential side? So you would do like, let's say, I don't want to call it a park, a space, a natural space that is then surrounded by residential and commercial buildings. You yeah, call that one I mean, hub and then you do another one of those next to it. Or how do you organize that? Yeah, exactly. No, it's a great point. So that's where you got to look at, again, at a systemic level, in my opinion. You say, okay, the cost of all these buildings. So, so we have this much population. So we need this much units of housing, which supports this much commercial office space and this much retail and blah, blah, blah. So you get your overall GFA for the city. Then you say, okay, how are we going to allocate it? What's the average building height? And then how are we going to play with that? So there's diversity and beautiful panoramic views on some of the rooftops arguably public rooftops, which have these beautiful views and then sky bars and park, sky parks and all this stuff. And then you get down into it, right? And then this comes down to design. And, but it also comes down to investors is, I would argue some should be, I want to use the word park because some of them should be municipal parks so that not just the wealthy have parks integrated into their housing. Now, the others is, as you can see with my designs, I designed the whole downtown boulevard of Concepcion. I proposed making it pedestrian plus rapid bus transit and then eventually metro transit or light rail transit. That is all nature. So all the housing and all the buildings along the main boulevard of the city gets visual and physical access to this. So that's where the public space becomes an asset even to individuals' lives in the way you're putting it. So I agree with you. It's important. And, and then it's on a per, per, so first you allocate strategically to make sure there's enough in the city. At some point, look, it's a private market. A lot of it's the private market. So then you let the private market do what it does. But again, like what I'm trying to get at is that we can use the public park system and we can use the savings of if we build more compactly, we have more budget mm -hmm. for the parks to have more. But I would argue, yes, you're not going to have a park in every single building. But again, what I'm talking about is there's different tools. So if you have parks in the street and the street becomes less for cars and more for people, which is actually how streets started uh, before that popularization or mass production of cars, then that's another access. So by having the boulevard, you actually reduce the cost of the buildings because the building owner doesn't have to build a park in his building. He just has to provide visual access. So most of this is on green infrastructure. What about blue? What about like lakes and ponds and rivers? How do you incorporate this into the whole mix? So that boulevard, 
part of its forest, part of its meadow, part of its like lake. You have the whole thing all around. Yeah. And honestly, I tried to do this with my psychology professor. That was one of the studies we did, which is published. We looked at different types of natural environments. So mountain versus lake versus beach versus forest. And we even tested people who live in a mountain region. So Ottawa, Canada, where I was a professor, and Florida, where I had connections. So we used another university. We evaluated beach people's landscape type preferences. And landscape in this sense is mountain versus lake. And everybody loved beaches. That's one of the things. And there, it seemed like a review of the literature showed that basically the landscapes we're most familiar with in our daily lives. So if you grow up with mountains, you're going to prefer more mountains. The results generally followed that, but not 100%. And so you couldn't conclusively say, oh, it's for this reason or oh, it's for this reason. What John would always tell me is, yeah, but Giancarlo, you're, you design these very specific designs. You'll never be able to say that design is better than that design with this, these psychological studies. So where I ended up with in my thinking is it's about creating beautiful spaces that create opportunities for a diversity of activities. What some of my PhD studies were, what kind of activities do we prefer to nature in versus office building? And so we had like 10 different office types, like individual office, open workspace office, meeting room, lounge, all the standard office types, even the Google per office types we had in there. And then we also had different nature types. We had forest dense forest, open forest. We had meadow, cave, swamp. And we said, what kind of nature would you prefer to do your work in? And so for a lot of activities, they prefer working in nature, but not the same type of nature. For different activities, it was different types of nature. And for different people, it was different type of nature. So there's not one size fits all. And so where that's leading me to saying is it's diversity. And nature naturally has diversity. And that brings us back to your point, which by the way, I never codified my work that way, which is instead of designing the city and just putting some piece of nature in artificially. It's about bringing nature in and then building the city around it. Yeah, that helps with the diversity. You set me up perfectly because where there is nature already that you can kind of build around. So ideally, if you have some forests here and then a meadow and then a lake and then a mountain and yes. then a beach, you build around that. That makes perfect sense. But what if we destroyed everything? Uh, <laughs> ideally, don't destroy everything and build something nicer out there. But what if you are building something from scratch? And that's a lot of projects in the Middle East and Egypt and Saudi. The Neon project, I think, is the one that most people would know about. Where you are literally building something in the desert where there is not a lot of the kind of nature that we were just talking about. I would argue that the desert life is in itself a nature yeah. that kind of people like. But what do you do there? Do you then come in and artificially build something? So, you know, I worked on that project exactly. before, at the beginning, before it became the line. And number one, there are mountains there. And some of the people working on the project found that, and actually even here in UAE, talking to the Department of Culture and Tourism and the anthropologists, this used to be a verdant river with like either elephants or woolly mammoths, some huge, large mammal walking around. And so back in the day, at some point, the climate and the environment was actually hospitable to quite a verdant and lush environment. And so part of the, as far as I understand, they're taking this on in Neom and some of the rest of Saudi, reforesting some of the previously forested areas. Yeah, I don't know how it's working sustainably or like if they sort all that out or not. I really don't know. I left before that happened. But so number one, there was pre-existing nature. And so my argument for that, so just to answer your question is, well, number one, work with what you got. So you got some nature. So there's that. But again, I go back to the diversity observation, which is create different opportunities. 
and different experiences. Because like with everything, humans are fickle creatures, right? We actually, we crave diversity. We get bored doing the same routine, yet we fear change. <laughs> so it's a weird thing. It's a bit of a conflict. But anyways, the point is, yeah, we appreciate diversity. So if you only have one space all the time, you might get tired of it, right? So diversity and tries to help mitigate okay, that. Okay, so a bit of everything would be the kind of logical way to not everything. Well, look, I, again, I said contextual, right? So, you know, something that's hugely resource intensive. Right, right. Yeah, no, okay, do. that's fair. I right. mean, a bit of everything is in like some green, some wood, some water yeah, yeah. features of sorts. Yeah. yeah. Incorporating that to something yeah. even if it's But small again, enough. work with what you got. Because even in the desert, there actually are opportunities to expose water because there are like subcut and different natural landscapes. So it's not always resource intensive. And it is possible. You brought me to something else that I was thinking about earlier. So we talk about greenery, nature, and sustainability and resources. I think one of my favorite adages, I think it was Chris Swan from Mazdar who told me this, smart isn't always sustainable. He was talking about all these technologies that come into play and we don't always kind of think about it, but smart has no bearing on sustainability. But my next point to that is nature isn't necessarily always sustainable. California, for example, where I think if I remember correctly, the majority of domestic water usage was in watering lawns. I don't know if this is all of California or some of the suburbs, but basically like the majority of the water was being used to water lawns. And what the government started doing is saying, okay, we will pay you to literally not plant grass anymore and plant something more sustainable. Las Vegas has been doing that for, mm. I think it's decades now at this point. But again, zoom out. Look, so the first thing I'd scold you on is <laughs> let's look regionally first. Okay. Because the quantum of water consumption of cities is like, I think, in Cal I, I can't remember, I haven't really looked into it, but I think it's like 5%. Anyway, it's minuscule. It's like 5% of the state's water consumption. The vast majority of water consumption comes from industrial and agricultural, and the vast majority is actually agricultural, especially in California's case. So number one, it's weird when you see, oh, we're running out of water, so now we're going to do these draconian restrictions on all the residents when really it's such a minuscule amount right so it seems more like they're doing it to look like they're doing something impactful meaning the regulators versus actually doing something that's impactful so you, you just need you need more efficient agriculture i mean so it's it, not it the is, case that the water is a big user are you saying for lawns so it is so lawns tend to i think it's roughly around 30 percent generally in suburbs mm -hmm. is the quantum of consumption and it can even be higher because now as technology gets smarter one way it is more sustainable is all of our mechanical systems are becoming more efficient so that is one way that smart does actually equal sustainability but i do agree that smart city doesn't always equal sustainability yeah lawns in suburbs definitely consume a lot of water and it's unnecessary and why does it have to be lawn? Can it be something else? Some native plants that survive. There's other ground cover that actually, in the Middle East, we use different ground cover, not all the time, but there's places where we use different ground cover instead of grass, which consume much less water. I kind of want to get into the self-sustaining city. It's a concept that we're talking a lot more about. I don't know if you've seen the design for Dubai. It's called a circle where they, some architects came up with a concept design where they essentially create a circle around the downtown of Dubai. And within this, you have like a transportation hub where there's like a metro station that goes all around. There's greenery that's inbuilt into this concept. There is water generation from air. There's solar panels across so a productive farming across the board. So you have greenhouses and vertical farming in the city that essentially allows you to fully sustainably, if you will. How does 
self-sustainability and creating your own resources play into this kind of city design? When you have nature, obviously there's certain parameters that need to be considered. Water availability is a big issue, for example, in the Middle East. Sunlight is a big issue in some other parts of the world. How do you account for that when you're thinking of everything we talked about today, but then also making that self-sustaining to whatever capacity that's possible? See, I fundamentally disagree with that thesis that it's that you said the majority of it is self-sustaining and I would argue that's false okay. and that actually the majority of it is not self-sustaining. So because any city, so first of all, economics, rule number one economics is you actually, cities, one community benefits and grows and prospers from interactions and commercial interactions with other cities. So we have one earth, we actually all depend on each other and this self-sustaining thing I never agreed with the build your own home out of tires in the woods. That's actually hugely environmentally destructive. So these people that say, I would have all the time when I was a professor. Oh, you're a professor in sustainability. Oh, great. You must love it. I have a cottage and it has solar panels. I draw my energy. I'm off the grid. So, you know, I'm really sustainable. I'm like, no, you're one of the most destructive. You have one of the biggest ecological footprints in the world of any human being. Like, because you're taking up land. And not only that, when you build in rural areas, you have to have a road. And it's shown time and time again, whenever you build a road, even if it's just for one house, over time, it draws other people. And over time, it expands and consumes. And so sprawl, even if you build it with all waste materials, your home, you have a much larger environmental impact than if you just took an, uh, an apartment building downtown. So that's number one. Now we're going to the larger scale, which is your scale that you want to talk about, which is the city. Doesn't make any sense because look at every economy, look at every country. Does the U.S., do all the countries in Europe, are they experts in every industry across everything? Do they manufacture everything that they need? No, <laughs> their manufacturing is exported to Southeast Asia. And then they, by the way, they also claim that they're reducing their environmental footprints. And usually, not all, I mean, I don't think all the time, I think sometimes they're fair about it. But most of the time, what they're claiming is actually them exporting their pollution to another country and then saying that country is polluted. A lot of times they don't account for the environmental impact and footprint of what they've offshored yeah, and exported. So yeah, number one, actually the majority of their resources that any city needs, because by the way, okay, fine. Let's run through your scenario. Not, I'm not picking on you, but I'm just saying. I didn't scenario. create the design. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, look, what, are, are, are they doing, is the city doing the mining? for the nickel and the cadmium and the copper and the iron and the, and are they doing the smelting and the okay, manufacturing? Okay. So I think your issue is with the, it's not like a hundred percent self-sustaining. I think the idea here is that it that can sustain quotes. itself at least in terms of general resources yeah. to some degree. So water, energy, food. Think about like if you were under siege, you could survive for yeah, six yeah, months yeah. to a year without oh, outside. No, they did studies like Cincinnati. If you just use the rooftops and the vacant lots, you could provide 100% of the food through backdoor gardening. So yes, I mean, there, there is some potential to that. My issue is if you make it a goal or an objective, it's isolationism yeah. and it, it's promoting that. And when we actually all need to be working together and it, just from an economic point of view, it makes no sense. Like you wouldn't want to isolate your city. You want to trade with other cities and all this stuff. These cities tend to be hyper-specific. You have Silicon Valley, at not, as well as with biomeds, right? And biopharma. But then like in Kentucky and stuff, it's pharma with other types of ag. And New York is finance and some other things. There's these mutually beneficial relationships and economic activity that occurs. So each one tends to have their specialization. 
So to make my issue is if you try to be generalistic and disconnect, that's a problem. The second issue is that I have is usually most projects have a budget. I say usually because there are projects that don't have budget that we're kind of familiar with. And uh, projects that have budgets, you can't solve every problem mm -hmm. and context. So for example, in Ontario, in Canada, it's something like 80% or more of the energy is produced by hydroelectricity, which most people would argue is renewable. So does it make sense to then paper Montreal with solar panels or which costs money, by the way, and requires resources when your energy source is already renewable? Or should you look systemically, what is the biggest negative environmental impact my city is having and how do we mitigate that? And so, so I have the same argument for the self-sufficient city. Not only that, but even the infrastructure. So sustainable, like solar panels. So solar panels, right? It's better if you look at that regionally rather than individual city, because then you share the cost across multiple cities by having regional power plants as opposed to city power plants. Now people argue about the size of power plants and actually it's the size of a city, so it's fine. But my point is, I think a clearer, potentially more effective objective is maximizing your impact. And to do so is if your goal is an ecologically positive footprint at the city level. And I have not seen one city globally who has ever achieved that. And I'm, I'm like 99.9% .9 sure no city has achieved that. And so the point is, we don't even know how to achieve that in a lot of the systems. Do we name me a city that has actually built a fully comprehensive circular economy? I work on many projects which work on circular economy with, with the people who claim to be the leading experts in the world. I'm not going to name any names. And we get into meetings and they say, who do we know that actually knows how to build a circular economy? It's, it's kind of mind blowing. And then I look at what they're doing and I have experience developing industries through the projects I've worked on. And I know actually a lot of things that you have to do to set up the foundation and step one, step two, step three. And I haven't seen a single project that has gone that route, right? In terms of okay, what industries do we start with? And then how do we build on it? And then how does that eventually become comprehensive? But I think what you're going to find if we start going in this direction, which arguably we need to in terms of climate change and the lack of resources, you know, we're running out of resources. We're consuming more resources than exist. I think what we're going to find is that you can't have one city have a completely circular economy in terms of producing everything. It can be circular, I think but it's probably going to be through cooperation amongst different cities with different, because also to have an effective industrial area. So I work on industrial planning a lot of times. Usually you have an ecosystem of plants that have feedstock or materials, or there's some mutual benefit for them being next to each other. And that's, that tends to be the successful industrial areas. There are large industrial areas that kind of do blanket brush stuff. But honestly, the more effective ones tend to have these specializations where they actually benefit each other, mutualistic benefits, symbiotic benefits. So I think I don't know, and I haven't seen it, and no one's seen it. And as far as I know, no one's even done the research on it. But I think to have fully, like truly circular economies, you're going to have to have these different areas that, and cities working together. Fundamentally, look, there's the dumb answer, which is, yeah, if you provide enough solar panels and you have desalinization in your city, then boom, yeah, if a hurricane hits or aliens invade, yeah, yeah you can wall yourself up. And, 
but I don't know what the point of that. I get what you mean. It's sort of like because <laughs> again, this is a concept. So and there's a lot of concepts out there for cities that people propose to be self-sustaining. But I get your point. Why live in that mindset to begin with, where you should really be focusing on how do we in a global infrastructure work together to make cities for everyone more sustainable. I'll just give a, my personal impression. When I hear about something like that, it sounds like a vanity project in the sense that, and maybe that's probably the wrong term. It seems like they're just trying to use a buzzword to garner some attention to their idea and get people to talk to them and create a business opportunity for themselves. Or they just fundamentally don't understand sustainability or they have some other objective or they've been asked to do something. There's all these different things. But the point is, we're out of time. We've already killed 70% of life, 70% of things that were no longer are. When we go into a forest, there's much less bird song. There's much less smells. There's much less life, which we lose from. And even like fruit doesn't taste as good. The chemicals, the flavonoids, I don't remember what they're called, but there's research, Japan and other people have done it, that the taste of fruit is worse now, not just because we own the commercialization of crops, so we don't pick, we, like, we get rid of the species that taste the best in favor of the ones that are the most durable so they can sell the longest. But not only that, the same fruit has 30% less taste than it did 50 years ago because of climate change. But not only that, our enjoyment of life is being reduced. On top of that, with more natural disasters, we're not able to enjoy life as much because we have to deal with problems, but the cost of living is also going up. And no, if you unfortunately end up in one of these really high impact natural disaster areas or experiences, your whole life can be disrupted in a way that maybe you can't come back from for a lot of people, a lot of people. So these, we have huge problems that need to be addressed now. So for me, it's like, get out of this stuff and focus on, we need to create circular economies. We need to figure out a way to, we're consuming more resources than the earth has, full stop. So somehow we need to square that circle. Yeah. So circular economy is one way of getting, not the only way of getting there, but that needs to be addressed. Just resource consumption needs to be addressed. We need, we can't destroy all of nature because it not only for resources, for oxygen, for water levels. By the way, desalination is getting so high in the Middle East that some people are saying the desalination plants won't be able to desalinate water in 10, 15 years, because they've made the water so much more saline. I don't know if that's true. I haven't seen any research papers on it. So I find it a bit, I really don't know. But I do know that people who grew up here have told me that the water is much more saline now than it was when they were growing up. But if you extract, so over time, even some of these issues might make places unlivable, is my point. I completely agree with that. And I think there's no disagreement that something needs to be done as what's the best way to go about it. But maybe not from an yeah. isolationist mindset, but localization is important. You mentioned regional power generation, but when you produce power at a distance from where it's going to be consumed, you lose a certain amount of power. It's a small amount, but we're talking 5% here. That's a big yeah, amount, yeah. right? So localized on-grid power generation solar to your building that you use yourself, and if you're not using it, it goes into the grid makes a huge difference, yeah. right? If you grow your own, for example, tomatoes and chilies and whatever else in your house. Yeah, yeah. Well, makes that herbs. example of Cincinnati, right? So in Cincinnati, like, because U.S. did this during World War II. I think they were called victory, if yeah. not mistaken. They promoted people to grow their own vegetables. And so there was a study done and they said, ah, actually, we can produce all of our fruits and vegetables in Cincinnati with the available land area. No, no, So, So these things are possible. And I agree with you. I agree that some of these things can add value, but I'm just saying 
we have much bigger things we got to solve, is my point. Mm -hmm. To go on it in a different direction then, how would you incorporate sustainability into what we were talking about earlier within the natural hubs is, I think, the best way I can put it, like the parks and the meadows and why are the residential buildings around it. What's the most efficient way to incorporate sustainability into this? Would you build within, you mentioned gardens, for example, in the rainforest area. So you could put gardens that actually have fruits. That's just the thought that comes to my mind. But how do you integrate the rest of the ecosystem into this? I'll go back to where we started. So when I was a professor, we started with this very basic question, which was what's really difference in impact, environmental impact, and economic impact, and social impact of single family home mm -hmm. versus mixed use development or denser development. And so the amount of land area that you take is like 70% more. Um, I think the carbon emissions were something like 70% more. Something was even 90% more. I'm, I'm struggling to think which one it was. It might have been the land area. The land area might have been 90% more land area. It's, it's huge amounts. So again, I'll just go back to where we started, which was a moratorium. Like stop with the suburban sprawl as the de facto development model. Just living more compactly. But again, there's good density and bad density. Good density that we've been discussing is nature integrated. And there's other ways as well. People love walking through a lot of the European cities, right? And Rome is not very, it's not that dense. I've actually looked at density uh, numbers throughout different cities. And it's really funny. It's been a while, so I can't remember off the top of my head. But 50,000 people per square kilometer is actually much more common than you'd think in Europe. So it, it's in many cities. So it's in Barcelona in the Cerro blocks. And those are only eight stories tall. And you have 50,000 people per square kilometer, which is in a suburb, I think it's less, it's like 400 people for, per square kilometer, something around there, or let's say even a thousand. So you see the huge gap. 20,000 people per square kilometer is so common throughout most European cities. And you even get over 100,000 people per square kilometer in highly valued places. But the funny thing is you have 50,000 people per square kilometer in Barcelona, in this eight story building. But people say Singapore is too dense, right? So how many people per square kilometer do you think Singapore is? No idea. So it depends on the community, but these are all skyscrapers, right? Yeah. Skyscrapers. 30, 40,000 people per square kilometer. That's it? And sometimes less. So the crazy thing, and I looked at this in Hong Kong and it's the same. Now, Hong Kong also has one of the most dense, I think it's 110,000. Again, it's been a while. But the 110,000 people per square kilometer it's actually one of the most high demands and most visited districts in the city. And there's really high real estate values. So it shows that even really high population density can be really desirable. But let's cut that in half. Let's go back to the Barcelona. You see that in other cities too. And the funny thing is it's eight stories. And yet in Singapore, it's less dense, yet people perceive it as much more dense because of the towers. So I was like, what's going on? And then when you look at it in Google Earth and GIS, you start evaluating they build towers, but then they have big grassy areas around them. So this is what I mean by good density and bad density. So they're not even that walkable, a lot of those areas. So what are you achieving at that point? So this is my point is you can achieve the same densities with many different types of living that actually a lot of people really like. And 50,000 is arguably extreme, right? So you can get to, again, four stories and you can probably get 20,000 people per square kilometer. And that's going to be a huge impact. I mean, the amount of resources, it's cut up by so much. You reduce your resources by 50%, 80%, 70% when you do more compact living. And the other thing is, what do you do with your time? When you spend your time in gardens or in nature, what studies have shown is you spend more time 
building and maintaining your relationships with people and with nature. So you spend more time in these activities, which have very low carbon impact, right? Your environmental footprint is minimal with these things comparatively to spending your time shopping and going around in a car to different shops and all these things. And so they found that when you create more community-based cities, you also tend to spend your time on less environmentally damaging activities. And you improve your health and you have more friends and you're happier, all these things. So essentially just being in nature more will make you more sustainable psychologically. But not only that, but arguably it, it creates a better lifestyle. Right. It offers a better lifestyle and it makes you happier. Now, of course, everyone chooses their own, their own life, but it opens this window where the research shows it's better for you and we're happier when it happens. Makes sense. I think that's a perfect place to wrap up. You said you have a book coming up. I know it's going to take a while to finish writing them. Any, anything else, any new projects you got coming up that we should keep an eye out for? No, I mean, I honestly, right now I've been focused on maximizing my impact on development projects. So I'm full pedal to the metal at my current job and then I do consulting as well. And so my website for my business is wickedsolutions.co. Uh, and that's where you can see it's out. I don't have my up-to-date projects on there or my city projects, unfortunately, but that's where you can see my work and contact me. And yeah, that's where I've been focusing now. I'm also really looking at developing a blog focused on trying to enable communities to make sustainable impacts themselves. So whether it's community groups or a group of neighbors or actually the government agencies and communities, because the point is I do consulting and I work client side and the costs are in the millions to do these studies. And I believe people need to know that their communities can be made much better and not in a very costly way. And there is a way to provide consulting services at a much cheaper price than these millions that can have high impact for these communities. I think, honestly, it's something that needs to be done if we're going to make achieve sustainability. Unfortunately, I think, frankly, planning companies and consultancies service a very small minority of the global population. And so one of the things I'm working on is getting information out that enables communities themselves to make changes. And that'll be through the blog. But it's like I'm trying to make impacts where I can, creating ways to inform and enable communities to really make impacts. I'll put a link on all of this in the show notes as well. Perfect. Thank you so much, Giancarlo, for your time. That was a great discussion. I think there's still more I want to talk about, but there's always the next time. Yeah. Well, thank, well, thank you so much for the invitation.